Then, then Peter came up, up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven, seven times, he said to him, I do not say you seven times, but seventy-seven times. But seventy-seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to the king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell to his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owned him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So the fellow servant fell down and pleaded to him, with him. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused to put and put him in prison, in prison until he should pay the debt. When the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. The master summoned him and said, "You wicked servant! I have for." Forgave you all you all that death you pleaded with me, and should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I have mercy on you? And in his anger the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So my heavenly Father will do every one of you if. You do not forgive your brother from the heart. Good job, Anderson. Thanks. All the readers do a great job. I don't say that enough. Appreciate you doing that. Good morning. Dismiss the kids. Kids be dismissed. Good to be with you again this morning. Drove down through the rain, and uh, you know if you're if you're looking to the the young lady sitting next to me over there, um, I know that that's not the woman you've seen me with in the past weeks. And so to squelch any rumors, it's my sister. She she's been visiting uh, for a few days with us, and Jana was unavailable to come because of a wedding shower she had to attend this afternoon. So Peggy uh, said she'd come down with me, and it's been great to have her with me. So that explains that. I have two sisters, and Peggy's my favorite sister, and, um, <laughs> yeah, no, they're great. Both of them are great, and it's good to have her with us. 
Okay, we're going to get into this this morning. I want to pray and then uh, launch into what we have uh, in the Word of God concerning a church being the reconciling community that we're called to be. Father, again, we come to your Word, we come to your truth, and uh, may you make it be so that it becomes ours, so we really inhabit this, we own it, we, we allow it to be the narrative of our lives from which we live. We thank you that you've called us into a community of believers that can have a powerful impact in our world, and so may you work it through us. And right now, may we have ears to hear that you might change us, that you might draw us deeper into yourself, and there'd be less of us and more of you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start right off this morning. We've had the, the scripture from Matthew 18, which we will come back to a little bit later in the message time, but uh, take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and just begin with the text, which really is a key one as we talk about the church being a reconciling community. Again, we, last couple of weeks we've been talking about different aspects of the community of Christ, the body of believers. I'm getting a little ping off this. I'm going to back it off a little bit. And uh, we talked about the church being a peculiar community a couple of weeks ago. And uh, last week we talked about the worshiping community and what that looks like. And today, the reconciling community. This passage in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is really pointing us in the direction of what our mission is as a people. And it's based in something very foundational and something very important. So here's what he writes beginning in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, there is a peace that has been given to us. And that peace becomes then our mission into the world. And as you think about the very idea of peace, doesn't your heart just yearn for that? Peace in every aspect. I was thinking just this morning, I'd forgotten this, this quote that I discovered years ago. I think it was sometime when I was ministering here years ago from William Barclay, which says that peace is right relationships in every sphere of life. And that's what the true peace of God brings. It's that right relationship with him, with others, all the way around. Doesn't your heart yearn for that? And yet, don't you see so little of that in our world today? We live in a, in a time in which we've really declared that we uh, are a part, of a, a part of a nation divided. The tensions between people and all of the different discussions, whether it's politics or it's our opinions about certain things or it's our beliefs, whether those are spiritual beliefs or beliefs about other things that go on in our world, or it's our behaviors, it's our very thoughts. It seems like, in fact, the tension is so thick sometimes that 
you walk around and you think I'm going to engage in no conversations with anybody whatsoever except about the weather because that it might be fairly safe. Although in days like this, that might even be contentious. I wanted to make sure I could see you, Holly. You were blocked behind this. I keep an eye on you. So, But we live in that age, don't we, in which we just kind of feel that tension that we're less civil about sharing our differences than we used to be, it seems like. We have this privilege now to sit behind keyboards and monitors and lambast each other and kind of do it with immunity. And in fact, uh, we're just alienating ourselves farther and farther. And finding common ground seems nearly impossible. You know, we, it seems like we've come to this place in our lives where we figure it's either got to be my way or the highway. It's either your ground or my ground, and there's no real in-between, and yet what I want to talk to you about today is that there is, of course, this third ground that we can land our feet on. There is another place that we can come to, a place where peace and reconciliation happen. And the only sticking point to that is that for us to get to that third ground, it requires that we move into a mode of surrender and that we kneel and that we humbly lay aside our pride to get to that place. Now, one of the disconcerting things about living in an age in which there seems to be so much division and so much animosity between people is that we need, in the midst of that, there to be a model, and, and we hope that the church could be that model. But the church isn't always the best model for that, is it? We we'll wouldn't be too harsh about the church in general, but we, we tend to be a people that at times are a little more even cliquish than the world may be. In fact, James Bryan Smith claims that Sunday morning is the most segregated time of the week. If you look into the church and you see all of these divisions, it's the church divided by racial streams or class structures or different doctrinal perspectives on things. And if you dig into the history of the church, unfortunately, you see a lot of that to be true. I remember doing this research a few years back, and I was astounded to learn this. I don't know what the numbers are now, but several years ago it was the case that there are estimated to be anywhere from 20,000, that's 20,000 to 33,000 different Protestant denominations in the world. That is mind-boggling to me. And it's estimated there's some 6,000 different Protestant denominations just in the United States. We've managed to, in 2,000 years, fracture our way into so many divisions, so many sects and, and rabbit trails away from each other that it's almost inconceivable. And so when we look at the church in that kind of disarray, can we really expect the world to see a good model of what unity, of what peace, of what reconciliation looks like? And yet... In the New Testament, we learned that it's not to be that way at all, is it? I, we're pictured there in the, in the New Testament as the body of Christ. This group that is gathered together and joined together as very members of a body. We're a family. And we're to be the champions of reconciliation. Not only for ourselves, but for us together and for, in fact, the world. And that's what I want us to rethink this morning as we talk about the reconciling community. And so, really, we're just going to land on some very basic, you know, Christianity 101 things here, but we need to be reminded of these, I think. And the first thing is simply this, that Christ is my reconciliation with God. 
That's the first place of reconciliation we have to come to, isn't it? It's got to get to the place where you and God are right. And Christ is that place of reconciliation for you and God, for me and God. Christ is my reconciliation. He's the third ground we're talking about. It's not my way. It's not your way. It's, it's his way. And even not in a sense God's way, it's, it's in Christ is the way. Christ is the way in which we find reconciliation. So it requires for us to get to that place that we understand two very simple foundational things. First of all, that we feel deeply our alienation from God before we even get to that place of reconciliation. That we understand our sinfulness, our full-blown rebellion against God's holiness, and that we understand that because of God's perfect holiness and our very imperfect unholiness, that in order for us to be reunited with him, something drastic has to happen because otherwise in our sinfulness we stand before a holy God who through his very nature will execute his wrath upon sin and because sin possesses us and we it we're caught in the crossfire aren't we and so just to get to that point of understanding that we are in fact doomed as a as an individual because of our sinfulness should place us in a in a in a state of terror But, thankfully, that's not the whole story. Because God is not only a God of holiness who, when he looks at sin, is is obligated, in a sense, to execute his wrath against that sin. God is also a God of love who, when he looks at us, the sinners, he's thinking of any way he can to express his grace to us. And so it is through the work of his very Son that he's able to cover both sides of those aspects of his character and that tension of his holiness and his love is resolved at the cross of Jesus. That he can fully execute his wrath against sin because of the sacrifice of Christ and yet at the same time fully love us who don't deserve to be loved. But he does it nevertheless. And that's the marvel that, that, that really drives Paul not only in other passages, but certainly here in 2 Corinthians 5, when he says there back again in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The old sinful self has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then he clarifies how that happens in verse 21. For our sake he, Jesus, he, God, made him Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I've been contemplating that truth for years, and every day it gets sweeter and deeper and more amazing that the onslaught of grace has spared me from what I deserve and has brought me into his presence for eternity. And when that avalanche of grace really begins to impact our minds, it's a foundational discovery for us. It's one we have to begin with to drive every other relationship that we have in life, to understand that we first, as we stand before God through grace, have been given the opportunity to live in peace with him, but also to live for peace in our life and to live in peaceful relationships in every other regard. So that's why I start with that simple foundational point, because no true reconciliation of any kind will ever occur in our lives 
until we come to an understanding and an acceptance of the reconciling work of Jesus. Because that's the foundation of peace, any real peace. Any other peace that we establish in our world is is temporary, I assure you. It eventually crumbles. We can establish treaties and concessions and make deals, but those are superficial fixes. Conflicts will always arise again, but it is only in discovering the radical grace of God that we discover the lasting peace of God. It's the only place we find it. And so I've got to begin there every day and through that lens view all of my life and all of my relationships through that, that it's only in Christ that the hope of peace comes. And I think that's sort of what Paul's getting at in verse 16 when he uses this language of of regarding something. He says, from now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul's saying we, we looked at Christ and we looked at our world through this other lens, the lens of the flesh and the lens of law and rule keeping. But all of a sudden we've been given this new lens of grace to look through things at. That we look through it at the peace that we've been bestowed and given through the work of Jesus and that supplies for us a completely new narrative for our life. It supplies for us a completely new way to look at things. No longer do we look at each other and our world around us on a law-based, rule-keeping type of format. Because if we do that, and we do that consistently, we're going to be disappointed time and time and time again. And we're going to have unrealized expectations for each other time and time and time again. And we're going to impose guilt on each other, and we're going to experience personal shame, and we're going to have animosity, because none of us can live up to all the rules that we establish in our own minds or that we've seen written out for us. It's only understanding that we are sinners saved by grace that we can begin to view each other in a different light. We learn that. It begins to set the table for every relationship that we have in life. And so that first piece is so key. It supplies hope for all the others I'm going to mention this morning. So we'll come to the second one. And that is that Christ is my reconciliation with other people. You see, that overflow of grace begins to flow through my life, out of my life, and it begins to meddle with my life, frankly, in other ways that, that can be often amazing. When I'm captured by the marvel of God's grace, it begins to spill over into other relationships. And, and the thing is that that grace begins to work itself out through my life into the lives of other people and yours the same way, not because we come and we begin to understand grace better, and what we've been forgiven better, and say all of a sudden, well, then I'm going to work harder at being a peacemaker. It's really more about the fact that as we contemplate grace, gratitude should be growing in us so deeply and so strongly that it produces in us compassion. Because we look at one another and think, yeah, I know, when you're struggling, when I might tend to become judgmental because I see something that I want to judge, I I just think back to how much I've been forgiven. And that was really Jesus' point in the parable that was read, isn't it? That story back in Matthew 18 uh, of the one who was forgiven this enormous debt but had forgotten the gratitude that should have been a part of his heart. And so reaching out to those around him who owed him far less, he was very harsh because he completely missed the gracious gift he'd been given. 
There are several interesting things about that Matthew 18 passage to me. One of them, of course, is is the question that Peter poses at the beginning of it before Jesus even launches into the parable. But even before that, it's interesting where the question of Peter comes from. Because if you back up into Matthew chapter 18, get into about verse 15, there Jesus has been discussing how the church community, the Christ community, is to deal with sin in their number. How do you confront sin uh, of one brother against another. And so it is in the context of how we do judge each other or how I tend to judge each other or how we should forgive each other, how we should move toward reconciliation. And so as Peter's listening to that teaching earlier in the passage, the one we didn't read, his wheels begin to turn. And you know, that's always a dangerous thing in Peter's head before Pentecost, it seems like. Whenever the wheels begin to turn, there's something going to come out of his mouth that seems to just be kind of bizarre. And so he's listening to Jesus teach this and, and then so Peter decides he's going to step up and be the guy and offer this brilliant case study. And so he poses the what if question. What if there's this case of a brother who sins and begins to pose all of the answers for that and Jesus answers that with a question and then follows with a story and it really reveals something deeply about Peter's way of looking at the world. Because Peter's question is launched from this attitude of law and judgment, isn't it? What was Peter's question again before Jesus even gets to the parable? Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So he's already in accounting mode. It's like the law-keeping, rule-keeping, bean-counter. He's got his abacus out. How many strikes before we cut the guy off? And there's essentially two questions that Peter is really asking when he asks that question. He's asking, first of all, how many times does my brother get to sin before forgiveness becomes unnecessary? And then he's also asking, how many times am I obligated to forgive before I can cut him off and say, that's it? It's like Peter's just waiting for that moment, isn't it? It really reveals a lot about his perspective, and a lot of times I find myself in those very shoes too. Because I tend to look at people around me and may become judgmental about their behaviors, and when I look at the world through law and judgment and all of those kinds of things, I'm really asking the internal question, what must I do, rather than what have I received? What has been given to me? And as I contemplate what has been given to me, how does that change then what I do? When we begin looking at our world with this obligation of accomplishing the tasks of life and being a certain person by our efforts, we are going to see that forgiveness becomes a bitter chore. But when we begin with compassion and understand how much we've received, the, the joy of the heart comes as a fruit given to the one who's forgiven. And as we deepen in that understanding, forgiveness becomes easier to do. Forgiveness is not an easy thing to do, but it becomes easier because it's laid like pearls on black velvet against the backdrop of all that we've done and all we've been forgiven. Again, it's that narrative from which we live. Let me take you back a few weeks. We'll see how good your your memory of uh, what I've had to say to you over the last couple months is. The very first message we had of few weeks back, Colossians chapter 3. Remember we talked about the narrative that we have been given as followers. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 
Paul talks about this grand picture that we have been, that we have died with Christ, that we've been raised with him, that we've been seated with him in heavenly realms, and that when he comes back again, we're involved in that too. We, we live by that story, that new story. And so it's that narrative that Paul is, has in mind as he continues through Colossians chapter 3, and then he gets to words like this, Colossians 3 verse 12. Since we have that story to lean on, since we've been given that gift of that story, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Because again, as you start at that first point, when you contemplate all the grace that has been poured into my life, when I do that, I can't help but look at those around me and say, can't that grace flow out of me to you too? I surrender to grace and I'm changed and that all of my relationships can be changed. You see, the key to living as reconciling people is to live as reconciled people. The key to living as reconciling people, those who pursue peace, is to live as reconciled people, those who understand that they've received peace through his grace. And that begins to trickle down in some heavy ways into the relationships all the way around us. Now, let's move to a third way that shows itself. We've received this reconciliation between ourselves and God as an amazing gift that changes our eternity. Then we see how that affects the relationships we have with other people because we, out of that understanding of that grace, become those better equipped to forgive, those better equipped to reconcile. But then we also have to understand this, that Christ is the reconciliation of others with God too, that we want them to not just to be reconciled to us, but ultimately to be reconciled to God himself. And that's really where Paul is landing there, especially hard in 2 Corinthians 5. That's really the main point of that text that we read, this ministry of reconciliation. Because, you see, grace seeks an audience. We've been touched by grace and changed by grace that we might dispense grace, that we might have it touch the lives of other people, that they too might be reconciled to God. And so my calling and your calling as followers of Jesus is to invite them to the table and to feast with the Father and to enjoy that as well. And so we as a, as a community, not only a, a reconciling community, are we then, because of that, a community of grace? Do we allow the world to see in us a reconciling spirit? Do my neighbors see it in me and in my church family? Do my neighbors... Uh, experience that through the things that I do, the ways that I speak? Do the, my co-workers see that? Do those in my sphere of influence see that? Do they understand as they look at my life that this guy has received something that is so eternally changing in terms of, of forgiveness that, that I want that too? I think about the flip side of that when I think about some of the stories in the Bible, and particularly the story of Jonah, a guy who is called to be God's arm of grace to the people of Nineveh, 
and you're probably familiar enough with Jonah's story in regard to that, that, that it, it's, a, it's a frustrating story really to read because Jonah, even to the end of chapter 4 of the end of the book, doesn't seem to get it. And there's, there's really several layers to the story. It's not just a story about the alienation that Nineveh has from God and that God seeks to remedy by Jonah going and preaching. It's really even more so about the animosity that Jonah had toward Nineveh. And even deeper, it's about the alienation that Jonah had from God. Jonah didn't seem to understand what grace he'd received in his life. Had he reflected upon all that God had given to him, even in the protection that he had in that trip from point A to point B, trying to run from God, going the different direction from Nineveh, being cast out to sea, being rescued. It's great to read the language of Jonah, that God provided a fish, that he provided the plant, that he provided all these things. God provides for him, and even though when he's spit up on the land of Nineveh, he doesn't quite get there. Jonah was in need of repentance to see the grace that he'd received, that he might become then a grace dispenser, one who overflowed with compassion to those around him, that they could say, you know, here's what God has done for me. Let me tell you a story. (laughs) Where'd I come from? Why am I bleached white from the... Let me tell you where I just rode from. Where, let me tell you what, what, uh, what brought me here. And he could tell his story, but he didn't seem to want to get there. And yet God even worked in spite of that. You see, God forbid that we should ever get to a place where we have this mentality that God has brought grace for me, but not necessarily for you. Now he's a reconciling God of all. Christ is a reconciliation for all of us, and that's really where we get to this last point. Christ is the reconciliation of all people, and not only in regard to all people to God himself, but all people to all people. Now, I dare say that that's probably something we won't see until Christ returns and all things are made new, and yet... I also know enough about the kingdom of God to know that he's continually supplying previews of that through the ways that we relate to people. And we have the opportunity to be ambassadors of that same peace to the world around us. In fact, isn't it Jesus that called us in Matthew 5, 9 to be peacemakers as kingdom people? Blessed are the peacemakers. That's not always a fun job, I understand. But you see, we're the ones who have that message of reconciliation that nobody else in the world has. We have the opportunity to be peacemakers. Now, of course, you understand to be a peacemaker is tough because that means you go to the battleground. And sometimes the most dangerous place to be in the boxing ring is in the shoes of the referee. It's not always so much that the boxers get beat up as much as the referee might. He's standing in between the conflict. And we sometimes, as peacemakers, because that's the very core work of the kingdom, we have to stand in the midst of that too. And yet, we've been given this message of peace. i take you to another passage that Paul shared. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. He's writing there to a church that's very diverse in their makeup about as diverse as you get, Jew and Gentile mixed together, two very opposing types of people in the ancient world who thought nothing good about each other. 
And as Paul writes to them, he writes to them about the hope of peace. And here's in part what he says, beginning in verse 13 of Ephesians 2. He says, but now in Christ, you, he's speaking to the Gentile Christians, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's that first point again. Grace is experienced by his blood. They've been brought to that place. Verse 14, for he himself, Christ, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see that visually, can't you, in his language. Those who are far off and those who are near, both being preached to, and they're brought to one new man in Christ in peace. And that's the only hope that the world has. I don't know about you, but I've grown weary looking at my world around me, trying to see any hope of genuine peace achieved by political means, certainly. It doesn't seem like organized marches or sponsored debates or fundraisers can accomplish that. Surprisingly, social media hasn't accomplished it. I so thought social media would be the place of peace, where we could come together as one and share our differences and find some hope of reconciliation. Our most effective power for peace in homes and neighborhoods and schools and cities and places of power is to pray that Jesus, our peace, become known. doesn't mean we stop doing some of those other things that might bring temporary peace enough for us to listen to each other, but ultimately it comes down to Jesus. It really does. And that's why we as the reconciling community have this opportunity to provide something to our world that brings them to that place of peace. I came across this... uh, this illustration just the other day, I think it is so powerful. It comes from Jim Belcher's book, Deep Church, and he tells about a metaphor that Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch use to describe a couple of different ways that churches often set up how they uh, include and draw members to their churches. There are some that are known as bounded set churches that are more traditional, and basically what they do is they determine who their members are, whether they're in or out, by a list of kind of rules and expectations. You know, if you follow this list, you're one of ours, and if you don't, you're not. But he said, then there are these other types of churches which are called centered set churches, and they're really churches that that are established in membership by presenting core values, and those core values then become like a lightning rod or, or a magnet that attracts people to them. And they gave a metaphor to illustrate the difference which I think powerfully illustrates who we should be as the reconciling community. It comes from their experience as Australians in the Australian outback, and he talked about two different ranches, the way that the ranchers will set up. Those who have smaller ranches will contain their livestock by building fences. Uh, It's a very natural way. You'll see that around here in the States, of course. You build fences. That keeps your livestock in one place. You know whose is whose and whose isn't yours. 
But in the Australian outback, there are sometimes ranches that are so vast, building fences is economically prohibitive. Building fences, they would have to build hundreds of miles of fences. And so you know what they do to keep their livestock in one place? They sink a hole and they drill a well. And in the center of that property, they have this place of water to supply life to those livestock. And they never wander too far off because they know that's where they have to be to experience life. And what a powerful picture that is of what the church should be. We don't establish our membership by these rules or what you follow and these are the expectations, but we say, here's Jesus. And if you want to find life, here he is. Try him out. Take a drink of that water and see if you don't come back time after time after time. That's what we have as our peace. It's a third ground, but it's first rate. It's the only hope. Let's take it one more step visually, and then we'll wrap this up this morning. I like the fact we have a cross up here, so I want you to imagine this morning. We won't do this, so don't, don't mob me. Um, suppose I were to ask you all this morning to come up and walk and gather as close as you could to the cross. As you got up from your seats and came forward and went toward the cross... How would that change your relationship to each other? Where would you find yourself in relationship to each other? You'd draw together, wouldn't you? We'd have all these people standing up in a little tiny spot on the stage. But they'd be close together, not so much because they decided to come together, but because they came to the cross. Because they knew that's the place where they needed to be. The place of peace is Jesus himself. As we gather to him, we find that reconciliation just naturally happening. I've given you some homework the last few times. I've shared the message with you and one more little bit to take with you to take some of these thoughts about reconciling as a, as a community of reconciliation to your life and to the world around you. And Let me share just three quick ones with you. The first uh, part of this exercise is I encourage you to keep grace in front of you. How can you do that? Certainly every week when we gather for communion, that's a reminder of the grace we've been given. But I would encourage you even to delve a little bit more, if you haven't yet, into the ancient spiritual disciplines of confession and repentance, where you actually set aside time to come before God and to confess your sins and try to enumerate as specifically as you can, and then to to uh, ask forgiveness for those things. Now, here's why we do that. We don't do that because if we fail to, God will not forgive us. We don't do that because God has this requirement of asking before he forgives. We do that because what it does is it deepens our understanding of forgiveness. It helps us to be reminded of where we come from and how vast his grace is. And so if you practice that, it will grow in you gratitude and compassion. Here's another thing I'd ask you to try. For those um, that you're finding it difficult to forgive in your life, maybe there's somebody in your life that there's, there's, this, there's this thing that happened, there's this person, I can't get over it. 
It was mentioned quickly there in Colossians 3, but there are times when we call together alongside of us a brother or sister to bear the burden. That is to help them bear the burden of forgiveness. That somebody you'd call alongside and you say, I'm really struggling with this. Will you vow to pray every day for me as I try to get through this and to forgive that person? Will you pray for my heart? Will you pray for their heart and for this situation? Allow others to help you in that. And then third and last, step toward forgiving someone who has hurt you. That, that hurdle of forgiveness, praying for it, Maybe going to this passage in 2 Corinthians 5 and memorizing part of that to just rediscover again the grace you've been given. God, help me in that forgiveness. Help me to move there to understand what you've given. Father, I ask that you would help us all in this this, uh, ever-deepening process of re-appreciating your reconciling love to us, that it might come deeper and deeper into our lives, and that we might do for your son. I thank you that while we were still sinners, that uh, your son died for us, God. We are just uh, so grateful for this um, amazing grace. God, we thank you so much for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.